0: It's usually standard for me to have a prologue for each RCR story, to set up the story I'm about to tell, and why I'm telling it. But that feels kind of pointless for this, because, well, I didn't really set out to do this topic. It wasn't planned months in advance. It was during the writing of the C1 Corvette review almost two months ago that I realized I had more that I wanted to write about than I could include in the script for that video. And so I... Did. I just kept writing. And within a week, I realized well, I guess I'm doing this. This isn't necessarily a story about a car or about a singular individual, even though it is mostly focused on people like Harley Earl and Zora Arkis Duntov. I mean, all those things are true, but this is really a story about success and its many fathers. And a car that has, even today, as many enthusiasts as detractors. Yet it's a car that I don't think deserves the stereotypical bad rap it gets, at least not on its own. So let's look at its history and try to see why the Corvette is so revered, why it's so divisive. We'll also naturally look at the people responsible for etching the car's place in automotive history, alongside their own. It's by no means the most comprehensive history ever, and I'm sure there will be talk of certain things I may have left out, but the goal here is to give an idea of the minds behind the creation of the Corvette and the popularity that has sustained it for nearly 70 years. So sit back, just hang out as we get into some automotive history. These
1: are the early years of the Corvette. Oh god, that was such a bad joke. Now look, you can't, you can't talk
0: about the history of the Corvette without discussing a towering name in the legacy of automotive design, Mr. Harley J. Earle. This is the man who would not only design the Corvette, but shaped the narrative around it in its early years as a cutting-edge accomplishment in American sports cars and automotive design. And it fits. Harley Earl is the quintessential example of the American dream, writ large. And it all started with his father, Jacob William J.W. Earl, a former lumberjack and woodworker from Cadillac, Michigan, who took a chance and moved out west in the late 19th century, owing to the plummeting prices of train tickets out to California at that time. It was 1889 when J.W. Earle founded his own carriage business in Los Angeles, known as Earl Carriage Works. At this point, J.W. was still his own man. No wife, no children, but no mouths to feed at all. Just a 23-year-old guy taking a gamble on himself and it paid off as the wealthy citizens of Los Angeles flocked to his shop either to commission JW to build them a carriage or to repair the horse-drawn carriages they already owned. It wasn't long before JW Earl's reputation preceded him, and he gained respect within the community. Of course, it's not exactly a revelation to say so, but a successful business has a way of making a man valuable to people who might not otherwise have noticed him. Case in point, J.W.'s sudden involvement with two of the more prominent families in Los Angeles at that time, the Hazards and the Tafts. Henry Hazard was a businessman with a name akin to a spin-off Nickelodeon superhero. He co-founded the iconic Hazards Pavilion, a venue that hosted everything from opera singers like Enrico Caruso to speakers like Booker T. Washington and William Jennings Bryan. The venue also hosted boxing, featuring the early years of future world champions Jim Jeffries and Jack Johnson. Because if your initials are JJ, I guess your odds of becoming world champion Jurassic GO UP AT SACRIFICE! Hailing from Illinois, Hazard had his wildest times in Los Angeles, like when he tried to shout down an angry mob during the Chinese massacre of 1871, only to nearly get himself shot to pieces in the process. Never mind that he was doing this while covered in lather, you know having interrupted his own shave at the local barbershop to try and calm the rioters. And that's a big deal, considering how much of a luxury a hot shave is for a man, even now. Seriously, just, just treat yourself one of these days. It's worth it, I promise. In keeping with the adventurous hazard name, Henry owned a big-ass Indiana Jones whip he used to wrangle mules. He also owned racehorses and later cars that he would drive with, according to his obituary, quote, the same enthusiasm he displayed in handling his horses, end quote. Henry Hazard was rugged and daring and ambitious, so it wasn't surprising when he became the mayor of Los Angeles in 1889. While it was a position he would only hold until 1893, the Hazard name had been firmly established in the community. His wife would soon give birth to a daughter, Mary Eleanor Hazard. And this is where the stories come a little closer to intersecting. You see, Mary Eleanor Hazard would eventually marry a man by the name of Harley Taft of the prominent Los Angeles Tafts. And no, it's not the same family that gave us President William Howard Taft, and there aren't really any wild stories to share about them, although they were responsible for founding the renowned Taft Building on Hollywood and Vine. It was the first high-rise office building in Los Angeles, and it would later house the offices of some of the major motion picture studios of the early 20th century, in addition to the personal offices of Charlie Chaplin and Will Rogers, among others we'll get to later. But even before all that, the Tafts were a well-off, respected family— So it was inevitable that the well-to-do Hazards would marry off their daughter to another well-off Angelino in the form of Harley Taft. The merging of these two affluent families resulted in a daughter, Abby L. Taft. And naturally, that young woman would be highly eligible in Los Angeles society upon reaching adulthood. Which brings us back to J.W. Earle. Having achieved success in business through his carriage company, he became a reasonable prospect for young Abby, and so, in June 1891, J.W. Earle and Abby L. Taft were wed. A year later, they would have their first son, Carl Everett Earle, followed by Harley Jefferson Earle in 1893, and then Arthur, Jesse, and William Earle, all born between 1896 and 1908, respectively. But with all due respect to the extended family, let's skip all that and zero in on Harley. It was November 22nd, 1893 when Harley J. Earle was born. And yes, he was named after Abby's father, Harley Taft, but he inherited his father's work ethic as well as his mother's dedication since she was instrumental in helping J.W. build their family home on a five-acre plot in Hollywood with her own two hands. You could also say he inherited the Taft family industriousness along with Henry Hazard's adventurous ambition because when you come from a family of go-getters, it makes sense that you eventually resolve to carve out your own path in the family tradition. The early 20th century brought the proliferation of the automobile and the rise of businesses focusing on the emergent mode of transportation. Case in point, the arrival of the Los Angeles area's sole Cadillac dealership, run by a Mr. Don Lee, a Northwestern Military Institute graduate from Chicago who'd spent some time in Detroit and became understandably enamored of the auto business. Lee's dealership was just across the street from J.W. Earle's successful downtown plant on a spot that would come to be known as Auto Row. As cars became more desirable and, in some cases, more affordable, J.W. changed the name of the family business to Earl Automobile Works, in line with growing demand, and Harley and his older brother Carl would work in their father's plant. At around this time, Harley began to take an interest in engineering, building his own one-passenger soapbox racers to compete against his friends, but Harley's dream didn't begin to crystallize until a vacation in 1909. At Bailey's Ranch, the family's vacation spot near the San Fernando Valley, Harley and his younger brother, Arthur, were playing by a stream when Harley discovered a mound of clay and decided to build cars. except he only built the type of cars he would want to see himself. In fact, the cars he sculpted were unlike anything anyone had seen, as his father would later say that Harley's models were, quote, damn near full size, were not like cars of the day, but as they might be later in the future. It was really kind of eerie seeing all those rounded-off car bodies in a period when automobiles were mainly just boxes on wheels, end quote. Harley showed an affinity for design a talent that would be nurtured in the years ahead, while complementing the family business. You see, in the 1910s, J.W. Earl had started to craft custom car accessories and parts, and by 1912, he was making custom bodies in his downtown L.A. plant, along with commercial body construction. At the same time, Harley was attending USC and would eventually transfer to Stanford University to study engineering but he took art classes as well to supplement the engineering classes he was already taking. Timing is everything, as the early 1910s saw Earl Automobile Works become one of the nation's largest automobile plants, even in spite of the emergent First World War. You see, they were doing customs and transportation contracts with movie studios, and Harley himself would do the art for these custom cars, and this earned him a reputation as a talented and innovative designer, which sent his rates skyrocketing as he became highly requested in the automotive community, so much so that he was privately contracted by some of the biggest celebrities of his day. Silent movie star Tom Mix, no relation to our buddy and regular Beer Reviews co-host of the same name, commissioned Harley to customize a car to match his Old West cowboy aesthetic, right down to a genuine leather saddle on the roof. Even Hollywood icon Cecil B. DeMille got in on the fun, getting the coachwork for his cars done by Harley to accompany his fleet of personal luxury vehicles, which included a Cunningham, a Lincoln, and a Cord L29 Roadster. But Harley's most famous creation of the time was for early film legend, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. The custom model utilized the largest chassis available in America at the time, the 1918 Pierce Arrow Model 66, featuring a 147.5-inch wheelbase and an 855-cubic-inch T-Head 6. For just the chassis, Arbuckle was said to have paid $6,000, which comes out to roughly $77,600 today. This didn't even factor in the special hubs and Burmese teakwood wheels with nickel-plated rims or the barrel-shaped headlamps, the bright purplish paint job, the leather upholstered interior, or the hidden compartment below the rear footrests rumored to have been used to hide liquor during Prohibition. Arbuckle made a bunch of requests, and Harley was all too capable of fulfilling them. All these features supposedly added at least $25,000 to the cost of the car, and the $31,000 Arbuckle is said to have paid totals to just under half a million dollars in 2020 money. However, it was worth it for the publicity, not just for Arbuckle, but for Dom Lee and Harley Earle. The car caused such a stir that Don Lee displayed it in his showroom, garnering a crowd of roughly 10,000 people over the course of the approximate week it spent there. According to a May 2nd, 1920 article for the Los Angeles Times titled, Arbuckle's Car is a Genuine Knockout, by now, Harley Earl had dropped out of school and dedicated all of his time to the auto industry. It was 1919. And Don Lee's business was growing as well, with the LA Times reporting Lee's milestone 10,000th Cadillac sold in California. Off the back of his profitable margins, Don Lee was able to buy out his neighbor across the street, Earl Auto Works. You could argue that it was a power play to gain access to Harley's roster of high-profile clientele, which is backed up by Lee's decision to hire the 26-year-old as general manager for the Don Lee Coach and Body Corporation. But even though you could argue it's weird to work for the guy who bought the family business from your father, this was the beginning of a fruitful five-year partnership between Don Lee and Harley Earle. Together, the two men produced some 1,000 custom cars for the rich and famous, as J.W. Earle entered a period of semi-retirement, and Harley settled into married life with his high school sweetheart. Harley also began registering his design techniques with the U.S. Patent Office, as the intersection between the auto and oil industries transformed Southern California into one of the preeminent hubs of early 20th century car culture. With America enduring the age of prohibition, Harley Earl was making inroads with potential business partners, namely Alfred Fisher, of the world-famous automotive family said to have built the body of the Detroit auto industry, as the byline of Alfred Fisher's Automotive Hall of Fame induction reads. Not unlike Harley, Fisher's father was a carriage maker, and he followed in his father's footsteps alongside his six brothers. Together, the brothers founded the Fisher Body Company, which was the world's biggest auto body manufacturer by 1914, producing some 370,000 car bodies for everyone from Buick and Cadillac to Ford and Chevrolet. By the 1920s, Fisher had become GM's in-house coach building division, which provided an opening for Harley to earn a spot with the automotive giant. Now, you might wonder why Harley would even want to work for a large corporation if he was already making a good living doing what he was already doing. Well, there was a good reason. Basically, Harley felt that auto executives like Henry Ford lacked imagination, and the only way to effect real change was from within. Of course, Harley wasn't afraid to share these opinions with his new friend, Alfred Fisher. And so he began pitching Alfred and his brother, Lawrence Fisher, of the Cadillac wing of GM, on the prospect of taking the types of cars he was designing for movie stars and getting them into mass production through GM, with the goal of moving his business to Detroit to design cars for everybody, rather than just for the fatty Arbuckles of the world. Not that things were going all that great for Arbuckle at this point anyway. I really want to stay on topic, but if you want to know about the infamous Fatty Arbuckle trials, Google is your friend. Needless to say, it's an incredibly sad story for everyone involved. Fascinating, yes, but just an absolutely miserable slog of a tale I won't get into here, but if you're a true crime fanatic, I mean, go for it, but eh, sorry, moving on. So now, Harley is under consideration to head up a new line of companion cars for Cadillac, ultimately being hired as a consulting engineer for the company, largely because he didn't want to work for Henry Ford or Walter Chrysler, men whose visions for the future he didn't share. Harley's design instincts had a cinematic flair, owing to his time in Hollywood building car bodies for future members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, whose headquarters at that time was, big surprise, the Taft Building, the aforementioned Hollywood landmark founded by his mother's side of the family. And on the subject of the Academy, their Oscar statuette featured the Golden Guy holding a sword supposedly meant to evoke the legendary French explorer René Robert Cavalier de La Salle, a man who would become the namesake for one of Harley's great early creations, the 1927 La Salle. And the LaSalle brand was intended to be something of a companion to Cadillac, which also took its name from another French explorer, Antoine de la Mothe Cadillac, the founder of Detroit and the namesake of J.W. Earle's hometown. So yeah, yeah, everything seems connected in a weird way. However, despite being a companion brand, Harley's 1927 LaSalle was an impressive performer, proving to be such a success that it earned him notice from GM director Alfred P. Sloan, who would hire Harley to lead GM's art and color section. Suddenly, a car's aesthetic was becoming as important as its practical function, which was Harley's entire philosophy in the first place. Everything was coming up Millhouse for Harley Earl as he finally got to express his vision for the future of American Automotives, and he may not have gotten there without the Fishers who, by 1926, had sold the last 18% of their stock in Fisher Body to GM for an estimated $208 million, which comes out to over $3 billion in 2020. That is ridiculous money. It's important to note, because the Fishers essentially helped Harley get through the door, which is not to say he wouldn't have eventually gotten there on his own anyway, but then who really gets anywhere alone, you know? For example, while the Fishers helped Harley make inroads, it was Alfred P. Sloan who helped launch Harley's career as a man of genuine influence in the auto industry, as it was together that Sloan and Harley came up with the plan to implement dynamic obsolescence, also known as planned obsolescence, which you still see with cars today, though far more often with things like smartphones and tablets and I guess some video game consoles. Basically, the plan was to purposely redesign cars with the goal of making previous designs look outdated by comparison, if not altogether obsolete by the time the new design hit the market. This is tied into the plan for annual model change, which essentially changed the way we identify cars, because it linked specific models to specific years or generations, so that a 1927 Chevrolet was different from a 1922 model, and you could tell the year by those differences. And while this likely would have happened anyway, there was an additional component of Sloan's approach. That of the ladder of consumption. Historian Daniel Borston credits Sloan with turning cars into, quote, a visible and easily understood symbol of personal progress, end quote. In essence, a guy in a new Chevrolet was more well-off than the guy in the five-year-old model. But the man in the Buick was doing better than either. The ladder of consumption was reflected in automotive design, with Harley growing more ambitious as the years wore on. For his part, Harley wanted to progress towards more aerodynamic designs, as evidenced by the LaSalle, which earned him his reputation as an industrial designer. Forward design work became key to the advancement of GM cars, on the principle of Harley's mantra that, quote, appearance and function are of parallel importance, end quote. To this end, Harley became a bit of a target in the realm of corporate espionage, as rival automakers tried to sneak photographs of his forward car designs, like Arthur Slugworth paying off children to steal an everlasting gobstopper, except these Slugworths weren't secretly working for the good guys. By 1930, you could argue Harley was closer with Lawrence Fisher than he was with Alfred Fisher, as Harley and Lawrence partnered on the 1930 Cadillac V-16. In his role as Cadillac General Manager, Lawrence leaked to the press that the company would build a V-12, but this was an intentional misdirect, and the 1930 Cadillac became one of only three production, gasoline-fueled V-16 engine models in history. And of the three, two were made by Cadillac. And of those two, both were paired with the Cadillac V16 car, with the first generation running from 1930 to 1937, and the second generation running from 1938 to 1940. The success of the 16-cylinder engine boosted Cadillac's market share to 40%, and the man who held the U.S. design patent for the 16-cylinder Marvel... Mr. Harley J. Earle. And he followed that marvel with the world's first concept in 1938, the Buick Y-Job, which featured a gunsight hood ornament because virility, I guess, power-operated hidden headlamps, actual electric windows, and the classic Buick vertical waterfall grille, in addition to a Buick super chassis. Harley was also instrumental in taking turn signals and adding them to the backs of GM cars in 1938, and within two years, turn signals were also a part of the front of the car, along with a self-canceling mechanism for the feature. Now of course Harley didn't invent the turn signal, but he did have a role in standardizing them in mass production cars, although one wonders how much of a difference it made when half the drivers in this state don't even use them anyway. Harley buried himself in his work, as the now renamed GM styling department was the biggest in the auto industry. And GM took considerable measures to protect the secrecy of what Harley was working on, from his rapid prototyping techniques to his design obsolescence technology and his pre engineering, which, according to the timeline on the official Harley J. Earl website, focused on quote, math based full-sized models that all of GM's major rivals leading up to World War II were still struggling to unlock and figure out, end quote. The piece would add, quote, auto innovator Earl was behind how GM became so much faster at taking a car from the idea stage to reality than the competition. Bottom line? Since 1927, Harley Earl was GM's key, so-much-faster guy, and auto design was the differentiator giving the general first-mover advantage, and that's why this company quickly toppled Ford Motor Company's firm grip on the number one position in the auto world. Auto design technology started a revolution of change and modernity inside General Motors, and dramatically quickened the pace of progress of all its product designs of the transportation world." End quote. And yet, as the United States entered the Second World War and commercial production of civilian vehicles was halted, GM decided that protecting the secrecy of their process was less important than helping the war effort. They met with military generals and government officials to pitch how the auto industry's manufacturing process was superior to whatever the enemies were doing, in terms of both turnaround time and overall product quality. To get more hands on deck, Harley began apprenticing women for jobs as stylists, which was a harbinger of things to come, as there would be a designing women team in the 1950s. No Dixie Carter, though. This all-women's group would be du- and shout out to those who got that last joke. I mean, I'm sorry. This all-women's group would be dubbed the Damsels of Design by the media, drawing attention to their growing stature in a male-dominated industry. During the war, these women were vital to the continued successful operation of GM's styling department and to the ongoing health of Harley Earl's entire operation during the war but this was before the Big Three escalated a war of their own. Flash forward to 1953, as both Chrysler and Ford actively pursue talent raids from the styling department in order to beef up their own division with experienced designers who'd worked directly under Harley Earl. The other automakers were on the back foot when it came to innovative designs, and what better way to get eyeballs on their cars than to poach a few of the people responsible for bringing those designs to life? Granted, the traditionalists weren't crazy about Harley's approach to styling, but anyone would have a hard time overlooking the stir caused by some of his designs. In particular, the masterpiece that ushered in the new year, a concept car that debuted at Motorama in 1953, a car that would come to be one of the most recognizable American creations in the history of the automobile industry. The reason you're probably here right now.
1: Let's get to it, shall we? It's always Corvette o'clock somewhere. Named after GM's German division, the Corvette began as Project
0: Opal, and it was born from the mind of Harley Earl inside an unmarked styling studio in Detroit in June 1951. You see, Harley loved sports cars and noticed how popular Jaguars and MGs and other foreign offerings were becoming after our fighting men came home from the war. And when Nash Motors teamed with British engineer Donald Healey and Italian designer Pininfarina to create the two-seat Nash-Healey sports car, Harley managed to get Chevy Division Chief Tom Keating and GM President Harlow Kurtick on board with the notion of crafting an American sports car, on the principle that the car would be made from mostly stock Chevy parts and could be used to improve the anemic family image of Chevrolet, even if the car didn't sell all that well in its own right. And there was value in a marketable roadster for mass consumption. The type of car Harley might have built for the silent movie stars and auto executives of old, but costing no more than $2,000, which is roughly equivalent to $21,000 today. But to do this, Harley needed help so as not to create something too esoteric for anyone but gearheads and performance-minded big shots to enjoy. To this end, he enlisted the aid of British engineer Maurice Alley to assist him in the development of this car, along with future GM president and engineering genius Ed Cole. Prior to joining Project Opal, Cole developed Chevy's small-block V8 to replace the old Stovebolt 6, in addition to his legacy as the future father of the rear-engine Corvair. Meanwhile, Ollie was a former Rolls-Royce engineer who moved to GM to head up the company's research and development division. The project also included Chevrolet body engineer Ellis James Primo and Caltech engineering and industrial design graduate Robert F. McLean, himself a sports car enthusiast. McLean was tasked with helping bring Harley's preliminary designs to life. Under Earl's direction, Ollie and McLean would develop the chassis and suspension for the first-gen Corvette, while Primo would engineer the body. The team wanted this thing ready for GM's annual Motorama Expo in January of 1953, a tall order if ever there was one. The pre-production prototype EX-122 was hand-built, utilizing the Chevrolet passenger chassis and suspension the company would use from 1949 to 1954, but moving the drivetrain and passenger compartment back for a 5347 front-to-rear split on weight distribution. The transmission was a two-speed Powerglide automatic matched to a 3.85-liter inline-six with hydraulic lifter known as the Blue Flame, rated at 136 horsepower, which was only slightly better than the 123 horsepower solid lifter variant known as the Thrift King. The decision to use an automatic transmission was purportedly due to the belief that GM didn't have a manual gearbox that would be able to handle the Blue Flame engine. Now, the car was also designed with three Carter side-draft carburetors, because why the hell not? Robert F. McLean crafted the front and back axles, the front bulkhead, and passenger compartments, and a roofline that topped out at just 47 inches, keeping everything as close to the ground as Harley Earl intended. Earl's original designs suggested a standard steel-body construction, But over time, he began to feel that a more lightweight, fiberglass body would offer greater versatility in design, even if it didn't provide the same strength. Not that this would be a concern for long, as a high-speed test conducted by GM for its new full-size, fiberglass-bodied convertible resulted in the test driver rolling the car, but escaping the accident unharmed, and with virtually no significant damage to the car's body. It was settled, then, that fiberglass would be utilized for the body of the Corvette. However, for the show model, Ellis James Primo utilized reinforced plastic as a means of just getting the car finished on time. As the prototype neared completion, the Project Opal name wouldn't stick. GM employees submitted suggestions, to the tune of some 300 submissions, according to the article Origin of the Corvette Name by Michael Satterfield for TheGentlemanRacer.com. But the name that stuck was the one hatched up by Assistant Director of Public Relations, Mr. Myron Scott, a GM employee since 1937 and the creator of the All-American Soapbox Derby. According to the March 2003 issue of Popular Mechanics, Scott fell in love with the word Corvette, with a K, when he learned it was the British Navy term for, quote, a small, fast, armed escort ship. Chevrolet executives liked the name, but wanted the K changed to a C, and thus the Corvette name was born. When the Corvette hit the show floor on January 17, 1953 at GM's annual Motorama event in New York City, the team involved had every hope that the car would generate buzz, although nobody anticipated the enthusiasm that met the car. GM realized they might have something here with this car Harley's team had built, so they had 300 manufactured as a test run of sorts. It was a hell of a car, stylish and unique, but it ended up being a lot more expensive than Harley Earl had planned, clocking in with an MSRP of roughly $3,500, $1,500 more than Harley had intended. Although production on the Corvette began at an old truck factory in Flint, Michigan, it was later moved to St. Louis by year's end. In that time, The 300 Corvettes produced were all exactly the same aesthetically, owing to the Polo white fiberglass body, red interior, black canvas soft tops, and 55-degree raked windshield. As the first generation went into production, it kept the Blue Flame engine and the 2-speed Powerglide automatic and the Corvette-exclusive Carter Triple Carb. The first-gen Corvette was occasionally referred to as a solid-axle model, since independent rear suspension didn't come along until the second-gen models, according to Mike Mueller's 2003 work, Classic Corvette 30 Years. Ultimately, production was ramped up so that across the 1953 and 1954 model years, some 3,640 Corvettes were built. Yet, they saw sluggish sales in those first two years, perhaps due to these being the only two model years, sold without a V8 engine. For critics and consumers alike, the Corvette was mostly just okay, and not really considered comparable to the European sports cars with which Chevy was trying to compete at least according to the October 1954 issue of Popular Mechanics, that surveyed Corvette owners, many of whom previously owned foreign sports cars, and 22% of whom rated the Corvette unfavorably in comparison. The chief complaint, other than the body leaking during excessive rain, was that while many liked the car, it wasn't viewed as a true sports car. In fact, the public response was so underwhelming that GM almost considered scrapping the Corvette altogether. It'd be the first of many potential deaths for the car with nine lives. But a perfect storm of circumstances rescued the car from becoming a footnote in automotive history,
1: thanks to its second patriarch, the man to actually hold the title as father of the Corvette. When the Corvette made its appearance at Motorama in
0: 1953, an important man was in attendance. A Belgian emigrant by the name of Zora Arkis Duntov. Born into a Russian-Jewish household in 1909 in Belgium, Duntov was ultimately raised in Berlin and, later, Leningrad. He took an interest in motorcycles as soon as it was possible for him to actually ride one. But his mother was so terrified he'd get himself killed that she talked him into driving a car instead, on the premise that it was safer. Not to be deterred in the speed department, Duntov bought a race car and zipped through the streets of his hometown with a passion ignited for the career he was to have. Armed with a degree in mechanical engineering from the Charlottenburg Technological University, now the Technical University of Berlin, and a resume that included academic research into four-wheel drive and steering, Zora Arkus-Duntov had his sights set on America, and thankfully, his resilience allowed him to get there during the midst of the Second World War, as he was able to evade capture by secluding himself in a French bordello. When he came to the United States in 1940, he founded Arden Mechanical with his brother, Jura. Developing hemispherical overhead valve aluminum cylinder heads for Ford's flathead V8. Now, Arkis Duntov would go back and forth between the US and Europe throughout the 1950s as part of his campaign to win Le Mans among other auto sports endeavors. But the crux of his story rests with what he was up to in 1953. You see, he was just in time to be in attendance for Motorama, and to witness the prototype Corvette firsthand. Suddenly taken by Harley Earl and his team's creation, Zora Arkis-Duntov went about talking his way into a job as Maurice Ali's assistant engineer at Chevrolet, thanks to his experience in European racing. After all, if you're going in a more sporty direction with your product in the years to come. You're going to want some people who know a thing or two about competitive performance. By the end of 1953, Zora Arkis Duntov held enough sway in the company that when the fortunes for the Corvette began to take a downward turn, he was able to have his thoughts on the matter heard by Ali himself. Long story short, Arkis Duntov seemed to understand the imperative for a manual transmission and, more importantly, a V8 engine. He wrote an infamous memo directly to Ollie on December 16th, 1953, titled Thoughts Pertaining to Youth, Hot Rodders, and Chevrolet, in which he discussed the benefits of a V8 engine in making the Corvette more desirable to young buyers, to say nothing of how the hot rodding community in general was an untapped market for Chevrolet, noting that, quote, sports car enthusiasts will get hold of Corvettes, and whether we like it or not, will race it, end Arcus Duntov saw the potential that the Corvette had to hold the attention of the burgeoning modern car culture and their performance-focused desires. So why not craft a car more specifically geared towards those ends? This is further bolstered by what I consider to be an even more significant letter he would subsequently send in October 1954. In this letter to Ed Cole and Maury Salli, Arkis-Duntov criticized Chevrolet for the outdated use of the Stovebolt 6 and the two-speed Powerglide automatic transmission, as well as the internal debate over whether or not to scrap the Corvette altogether. Titled, Subject, Corvette, Arkis-Duntov writes, quote, By the looks of it, Corvette is on the way out. Dropping the car will have adverse effects internally and externally. It is a mission of failure. The failure of aggressive thinking in the eyes of the organization. Failure to develop a saleable product in the eyes of the outside world. End quote. Later in the letter, Arkis Duntov would add, quote, Ford enters the field with the Thunderbird, a car of the same class as the Corvette. If Ford makes success where we failed... It may hurt. With aggressiveness of Ford publicity, they may turn the fact to their advantage. I don't mean in terms of Thunderbird sales, but in terms of promotion of theirs and depreciation of our general lines. We will leave an opening in which they can hit at well. Ford out-engineered, outsold, or ran Chevrolet's pride and joy off the market. Maybe the idea is far-fetched. I can only gauge in terms of my own reactions or actions. In the bare-fisted fight we are in now, I would hit at any opening I could find, and the situation where Ford enters and where Chevrolet retreats, it is not an opening. It is a hole. Now, if they can hurt us, then we can hurt them. We are one year ahead, and we possibly learned some lessons which Ford has yet to learn. Is this effort worthwhile? This I am in no position to say. Obviously, in terms of direct sales, a car for the discriminating, low-volume market is hardly an efficient investment of efforts. The value must be gauged by effects it may have on an overall picture. End quote. As the letter continues later on, Stuntov writes, Quote, the Corvette still has the best and raciest look of all the sports cars, the Thunderbird included. Performance is far superior to all the passenger cars and to 99% of the sports cars used on the road. It has flaws in respect to passenger protection water leaks and a cumbersome top and side window. With these minor flaws removed, we have a sports car with as much practical value as the sports car can have. End quote. In conclusion, Arkis Duntov writes quote, As I see it and put it down, the Corvette is a product different from a passenger automobile having in every phase of operation problems of its own. With sales potential between three and at the most 10,000 cars a year, It is bound to be a hindering stepchild in an organization which acts and thinks in terms of 1,500,000 units. A subdivision, section, department, or whatnot, but an organization, no matter how small, but which is directly responsible for the successes of operation, is necessary. An organization which will eat, And sleep Corvette as our divisions are eating and sleeping their particular cars. I am convinced that a group with concentrated objective will not only stand a chance to achieve the desired result, but devise ways and means to make the operation profitable in a direct business sense. End quote. Executives listened, and this is why Zora Duntov is often credited as having saved the Corvette in its early years, earning the title The Father of the Corvette, despite not being Harley Earl. Although I guess success has many fathers, failure as an orphan, blah blah blah. I mean, you look at a guy like Ed Cole, and he was pretty instrumental to the creation of the Corvette. In addition to having a pretty hefty legacy of his own, I mean... Ed Cole designed the 4.3-liter turbo-fire V8, which bumped the Corvette up to 195 horsepower in 1955, the year that also saw the addition of a three-speed manual transmission. This was a combination that became a contender on the stock-car circuit, and it provided similar appeal to enthusiasts who just wanted a good time in a fast car. Suddenly, the Corvette was offering worthy performance, and even European racing enthusiasts had cause to take notice. In fact, in furtherance of getting people to take the Corvette seriously, Arcus Duntov put his money where his mouth was, getting behind the wheel of a 1956 Corvette powered by a modified V8 and setting a flying mile record at Daytona, screaming past 150 miles per hour in the updated machine. The modifications included the camshaft design he would use for his own Arden V8s, proving the customization potential of the Corvette in addition to its speed and handling capabilities. When the Corvette was bumped up to 240 horsepower thanks to the aforementioned uh, 265-cubic-inch small-block V8 that Ed Cole designed, it was paired with the Duntov high-lift camshaft. Later, Rochester fuel injection was added to the mix, and the focus, once again, was on getting the Corvette onto the track and drumming up publicity by tearing up the circuit. A stock Corvette won the sports car division, while a modified Corvette won the modified sports car division at Daytona Speedweeks in 1956. But the only way to win the big events like Sebring or Le Mans was to create a car specifically for the racetrack. This ultimately resulted in the 1957 Corvette Supersport, which debuted at the 1956 New York Auto Show. Although the Supersport did make a record-breaking showing at 12 hours of Sebring, it couldn't get the job done at Le Mans due to mechanical troubles. Which is bad enough, but what made matters worse was the disaster at the 1955 Le Mans race, the infamous multi-car crash in which 83 people were killed and some 180 were injured. Although the incident happened close to two years earlier, there was public pressure from American automakers to withdraw from competitive racing. So the American Automobile Manufacturers' Association, which naturally featured various representatives of American automakers in its membership, came to an internal agreement in 1957 that the automakers would not participate or sponsor motorsports. And that included supplying pace cars, promoting, and offering any type of support whatsoever to racing. The American automakers were just out. This gentleman's agreement was something of a preventative measure to avoid stricter congressional action by beating the government to the punch and showing that they could self regulate. But this ban essentially killed Arkis Duntov's dreams of pursuing racing with his creations. Not that this stopped him from trying to find ways around the agreement, such as by providing chassis upgrades and technical assistance to private racing teams. Hell, the Southern Engineering and Development Company, or SEDCO, even put out a detailed guide for racing 1957 Chevrolet stock cars. The manual helped prospective racers build these cars via step-by-step instructions, since there could be no on-the-books factory support whatsoever for these, quote, Black Widow Chevys. And Arkis Duntov continued his own speed-fueled pursuits, as 1957 saw his promotion to a new role as Director of High-Performance Vehicles at Chevrolet. To this end, he began developing such projects as the Chevrolet Engineering Research Vehicle, better known as the Serve one Racer, which he drove at exhibitions on tracks such as the Riverside International Raceway in California. But as time wore on, the government grew wise to GM's involvement in motorsports. The gentleman's agreement wasn't going to cut it anymore. You see, anti-monopoly laws prevented GM from owning 60% of the U.S. car market. By 1961, they were already up to 53%, due in part to the revenue from the motorsports in which the company had been quietly involved. At the time, work was being conducted on a possible mid-engine Corvette, which had been years in development. Arkis Duntov wanted it, his colleagues in R&D wanted it, and he was certain the people wanted it. But the Justice Department was pressuring GM, leaving the company little choice but to make the stipulations of the Gentlemen's Agreement mandatory. The company couldn't afford to risk it, so they shuttered the project for the time being. Of course, this wouldn't be the end of GM's involvement in racing, obviously, or in racing focused engineering. Even as the lifespan of the C1 was winding down, consumers still had the option of the Z06 performance package, designated the RPO Z06, or Regular Production Option Z06. It was essentially a race intended Corvette that was ready for the track straight off the line. Ordering one wasn't typical, as you first had to specify that you wanted the fuely, or fuel-injected coupe, specifically with the positraction limited slip differential and four-speed manual transmission. From there, you could order the Z06 option. Now, the only engine you could get was the 5.4-liter L84 with Rochester fuel injection, but it was well worth the trouble for any enthusiast who wanted to get track action in a Corvette. Only 199 of these original Z06s were made, but it marked a significant point in Corvette's gradual legitimization in the eyes of sports car fanatics, even after the racing ban. By the end of the lifespan of the C1 in 1962, options could get it up to 340 horsepower. What had started as a pipe dream was now a legitimate competitor to the European sports cars that held such sway
1: in car culture at the time. Of course, the legend was only just getting started. Ah yes, the Stingray. The evolution
0: of an American icon. Arguably as legendary a creation to come out of the mid-60s as the Mustang. I'll leave that up to you guys to debate in the comments. I mean, it's not like we're talking about McLarens here. But needless to say, its creation was a natural culmination of the ban on motorsports, as Zora Arkis-Duntov continued his experiments to craft something in the vein of the Supersport or the Serve one But what sealed the C2's fate was the Stingray special by designer and GM R&D head Bill Mitchell. Mitchell was a Greenville, Pennsylvania native who studied at the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh before studying at the Art Students League in New York City, after which he joined Baron Collier Advertising, honing his skills illustrating advertisements for MG vehicles, before becoming friends with the founders of the Automobile Racing Club of America, Baron Collier Jr., Miles Collier, and Sam Collier. Mitchell was hired as the club's illustrator, which brought him to the attention of Harley Earl, and the rest is history. From 1936 to 1958, Mitchell soared through the ranks, going from chief designer at Cadillac, to director of styling for GM, to vice president of all styling— Taking over from Harley Earl, who retired in 1958. Since the release of the C1, Harley Earl had become a bit of a controversial figure at GM. Now, some of it stems from a decision he made in 1956 to support his son's racing career by building him a custom Corvette SR2 using members of the GM styling team as well as presumably the company's own money. Now, of course, he only did this because his son, Jerome, was racing a Ferrari, and it allegedly bothered some of the higher-ups to have the son of the legendary Harley Earl racing in a non-GM car. So Harley built the car. And he had the ability to get away with this because, well, he was Harley Earl. There was actually a phrase passed around within the auto industry at the time that went, "'Our father, who art in styling.'" Harley Earl, be thy name. He wasn't the traditionalist that Henry Ford was and never intended to be. Hell, the whole damsels of design approach proved that with one newspaper proclaiming Earl, quote, an adventurous man at heart and long an advocate of women's rights in the auto industry. end quote. Yet, this supposedly created tension within the male-dominated industry. Granted, I'm using the timeline from Earl's official website as a guide here, so I would imagine there's some bias there, but I would argue his impact on the auto industry is an objective fact that's difficult to dispute whether you consider him the true father of the Corvette or not. And we'll talk a little bit more about what happened to Earl post-retirement a little later. But for now, in Mitchell, Earl had a successor who was something of a kindred spirit. Bill Mitchell was another racing enthusiast, and it was only natural that his Italian-influenced, performance-oriented Stingray racer utilized a 283-cubic-inch small-block Chevy V8 with naturally aspirated Rochester Constant Flow mechanical fuel injection. The hope was to take this car and experiment with mid- or rear-engine designs, sort of like the Serv-One concept. But ultimately, the project became more streamlined due to financial and practical necessity, and the rear-engine model once again became a pipe dream. The XP-720 concept aimed to refine the appearance of Mitchell's Stingray while incorporating some of the design elements of the canceled Q Corvette project car, such as the independent rear suspension. This would end up being the first Corvette to be tested in a wind tunnel for aerodynamics. Although the fiberglass outer panels from the original Corvette remained, GM used double the amount of steel support for its structure as the previous generation. Zora Arkis-Duntov loved the approach Mitchell took alongside fellow designer Larry Shinoda, While the new Corvette would retain the outboard rear brakes, Arcus Duntov fought for the implementation of independent rear suspension, which was vital to the overall weight reduction he was going for. But production costs were already high, and GM were already facing the threat of antitrust lawsuits in the wake of their market dominance. A 2012 article by Carl Muth for Global Policy Journal discusses the dilemma GM was facing and the lengths to which they'd go to keep their company afloat. "...historically, GM was organized into a vertical hierarchy of brands. A young man might buy a Chevrolet or a Pontiac, then move up to an Oldsmobile or a Buick, and eventually have a chance to own a Cadillac. This was meant to track with the progression of mostly-white, mostly-white-collar careers of men leading one-car households in post-war America. And it was a real success." Through GMAC and its control of its dealer network, GM later made sure GM cars were cheap to finance and difficult to trade in toward Ford products. This was achieved by offering artificially high trade-in values for GM products traded toward other GM products. However, as GM began to worry about antitrust, it decided to take evasive action. In fact, it set about doing something no other large manufacturing company has done, preparing part of the company to be sacrificed on the Department of Justice's antitrust altar. This brand was Chevrolet. Throughout the early 1960s, Chevrolet began to be differentiated from the rest of GM in unusual ways. It had its own high-end sports car, the Corvette, its own one-ton truck platform, the Suburban, and seven factories produced exclusively Chevrolet cars, engines, or parts. Chevrolet began to look like a separate car company, a Russian doll strategy of a company within a company. The strategy allowed GM to push forward owning the market. If threatened, like a gecko discarding its tail, it would throw off Chevrolet as a sacrifice to the antitrust regulators and continue on its path toward world domination. Or at least... That was the strategy." End quote. Wait, so you're telling me geckos can discard their tails? Why are we still buying insurance from these... So, in short, Chevrolet was already on the chopping block if push came to shove with the government. And so, they were especially risk-averse. But Arkis-Duntov was able to convince the company to take the risk, on the vow that his second-generation Corvette would sell some 30,000 units in its first tier. However, while Arcus Duntov fought for the independent rear suspension, Mitchell fought to keep the split rear window. Which remained, but only for the first year of production. So compromise, I guess. Yet the car itself was so visually striking in every other regard that it couldn't help but centralize all attention, what with the eye-catching body lines and a hood with vents that lacked functionality but still looked cool as hell. So, everything worked out for the better anyhow. But beyond that, the performance featured a considerable power upgrade with optional hydraulic power steering and 327-cubic-inch V8 engine options that started at a 250-horsepower base but could get drivers north of 300 horsepower, depending on the options selected. For instance, the Rochester fuel-injected 327 V8 could get you up to 360 horsepower from the jump. The interior design was remodeled as well, with a more streamlined dash, a roomier glove box, and ventilation improvements, in addition to more visually pleasing, rounded gauges, along with a sleeker center console and vertically aligned radio. Of course, there were criticisms regarding the lack of a rear deck or trunk lid, and I've read plenty of rumors online about why this was the case, from accommodating weight reduction while maintaining the front mid-engine, rear-wheel drive layout, to Zora Arkis-Duntov being told by GM that they only had the funds for either the independent rear suspension or a proper trunk lid, but not both. Either way, this is how it ended up, take it or leave it. And to be fair, there was still storage space, it was just an issue regarding ease of access, as the driver would have to undo the folded top panel opening to get to the storage area. Ultimately, it was a relatively small issue, in the grand scheme of things, because when the Corvette Stingray hit the market in 1963, the reaction was genuinely enthusiastic. Car and Driver proclaimed, quote, "...hiding independent rear suspension under its sculptured tail, the Corvette is now second to no other production sports car in road-holding and is still the most powerful," end quote. The review did note issues with understeer and an overall setup more conducive to the track than back-road driving, owing perhaps to what the review claimed was, quote, a rigid front anti-roll bar in combination with a relatively stiff transverse leaf spring in the rear, end quote. And the review follows up that statement by saying that this hampered, quote, the independence of the suspension of each wheel, with the result that even on mildly rough surfaces, the car does not feel perfectly stable. But it was an otherwise solid review for a car looking to further stake its claim in the evolving American sports car market. Of course, there's always been that debate surrounding the Stingray name. From what I could find, the Stingray name came when Mitchell wanted to start racing his XP87 concept. He was prohibited from calling it a Corvette, so he needed to find a new name. Mitchell was big into deep-sea fishing and wanted his car to evoke the Stingray, and so he used it as a single word, much like the fish. But when GM purchased the car from Mitchell in 1961, one word became two, and that title was retroactively applied to Mitchell's Stingray Racer. Inevitably, the 1963 production Corvette Stingray was written as two words— and would stick around for the production cycle of the C2 Corvette from 1963 to 1967, before going back to one word from 1969 to 1976. I don't know how much this debate actually matters to anybody, but it's something I've always wondered about that I never really had the drive or excuse to research before. So, there you go. And once it was on the market... The 1963 C2 was one for the ages. Chevrolet's ad slogan declared, Only a man with a heart of stone could withstand temptation like this. The car may have sold below Arcus Duntov's projections, moving some 21,513 units in its first year, but it proved the viability of the Corvette moving forward. The notion that enthusiasts would actually purchase an enthusiast car, which I'm sure the market would love these days. And it set the tone somewhat for Corvette's future under Bill Mitchell, as evidenced by his Mako Shark concept cars, a creation in tandem with Larry Shinoda, born of Mitchell's enthusiasm over having supposedly caught a shark on one of his fishing expeditions. The Mako Shark made its debut at the 1962 New York International Auto Show, which more or less tells you the purpose of the car, as it made the rounds at various automotive expos to give people a sense of where the Corvette might be headed for the future, and to test public response accordingly. Granted, the design would change over time through the removal of the double-bubble canopy and the redesign of the hood and front fascia. But it remained an incredibly alluring vehicle, so much so that GM used it as the base for what would later become the Manta Ray, utilizing a new ZL1 all-aluminum 427 engine. The Mako II concept served a similar purpose as a sort of test run for future designs, in this case a look into what the future might hold for the C3. Chevy's engineering director, Frank Winchell, headed a development team to explore different possibilities for the next generation, while Zora Arkus-Duntov was in charge of another. In the desire to design a proper mid- or rear-engine Corvette, Winchell looked to the Chevy Corvair from small-block Chevy V8 creator Ed Cole. From this starting point, Winchell's team devised a smaller version of the Corvair with a rear-aligned 327-cubic-inch V8 and a transaxle reminiscent of the Pontiac Tempest. But the car was too heavy and unwieldy, leading to its destruction during a high-speed lane-change test and Duntov's team didn't fare much better, focusing on mid-engine possibilities, only to come to the realization that GM didn't have a transaxle capable of handling the torque of a high-power V8, so Mitchell got in on the fun and gave a redesign his shot, alongside Larry Shinoda. Mitchell's take had something of a Coke bottle design with a sharper front end in keeping with the aggression of the first Mako Shark, but on a chassis that would be more of an adaptation of the existing Stingray's design. Mitchell again took Shinoda's designs to the styling department, giving us what would become the Mako II, which hit the auto show circuit in October 1965. However, the design was still divisive enough to prompt further redesigning before the team could settle on a direction for the C3. Now, with all that having been said, the C2 still had plenty of life left before it was phased out. For instance, 1965 brought the 396 cubic inch big block engine that made 425 horsepower, while 1966 brought further big block options in the form of the 396 and the 427, the latter of which could get you 435 horsepower and 460 torque. Meanwhile, 1967 brought the infamous L88-427, a racing-designed engine with forged pistons and an overall vehicle layout that included positraction differential, reinforced suspension, and power brakes. The C2 is the only Corvette generation left for us to review as of the making of this video. Well, other than the C8, but (laughs) how are we going to get one of those? Here's hoping we can get our hands on a C2 to experience for ourselves. But for now, we press
1: on, as the third generation would bring great gains and greater losses. When the C3 debuted for model year 1968,
0: it was a new car that had a hint of familiarity for anyone who'd seen the Mako 02 on the car show rounds. Granted, it wasn't as fierce-looking, but it didn't really have to be, as long as it advanced the standard of performance that the team wanted to reflect with each new Corvette generation. The C3 got an automatic transmission in the form of a 3-speed turbo-hydromatic with an optional 3- or 4-speed manual. You could get the 327 cubic inch small block with 300 horsepower standard, or you could get 350 horsepower with the L79 variant. And that's great and all if you're big on figures and potential, but the car almost instantly started getting criticisms over build quality, from poorly fitted body panels to below-standard factory paint. But this is almost something of a theme for the Corvette in the early years underwhelming early reviews leading way to improvements that actualized the model's potential which gained the car a dedicated following with the C3 Corvette we got the beefier big block 427s such as the 390 horsepower L36 and the 435 horsepower L71 there was also the much sought after L88 big blocks which got you a bigger engine accommodating hood bulge so you could really let everybody know you were packing heat Hell, even the small blocks got in on it by 1969, when they were bumped up to 350 cubic inches. Yet challenges were ahead owing to an internal struggle at GM that inadvertently aided the production of the 1970 model, if you can believe it. You see, the United Automobile Workers went on strike for 67 days in 1970, which prompted GM to extend the 1969 production year by two months. Not only did this lead to a record sales year, Chevrolet president John DeLorean felt that extending production on the 1969 model year would allow the company to catch up on the manufacturing backlog caused by the strike. The Corvette that rolled off the production line on November 7, 1969 would have been a 1970 model if not for the strike, but regardless, the Riverside gold-painted car holds the distinction of being the 250th Corvette produced. The strike was ultimately resolved with wage increases, inflation protection, and the ability to retire and take pension after 30 years. And with the strike resolved, everyone went back to work albeit in a decade that proved challenging to the auto industry due to government stipulations. Yet, even as we entered the age of tightening emissions regulations, people were still excited to drive the C3. Granted, by 1971, the LT1 engine had declined from 370 to 330 horsepower, but it was still arguably the best handling of the C3 options because of the reduced weight over the nose. The LT1 had been an engine option utilized in racing, and it preceded the introduction of bigger options like the 454 cubic inch LS6, making 425 horsepower, in addition to the ZR1 and ZR2 racing packages, which got you suspension upgrades, among other changes. Over time, the loyalty to the C2 dissipated somewhat, as people grew to appreciate a C3. In 1975, the C-3 went through some even bigger changes. On the one hand, it received a catalytic converter and new ignition and fuel tank emission control systems. On the other hand, it lost those big block engine options. 1975 was also the start of the 11-year hiatus for convertible models. 1976 offered aluminum wheels but lost the sugar scoop but the Corvette's popularity grew throughout the decade in spite of inflating prices, with over 130,000 units sold between 1975 and 1977. The Corvette's third generation marked a turning point for the brand as well as a changing of the guard. Zora arkis duntov retired in 1975 to be succeeded as Corvette's chief engineer by Dave McClellan who joined GM in 1959 following his graduation from Wayne State University. Yet despite the change in leadership, the decade saw Corvette surpass 50,000 production units in a single year for 1979, reaching 53,807 units, making it the highest-selling year in the history of the Corvette up to that point. This, despite a price tag of over $10,000 on most models, which is over $35,000 in 2020 which I guess doesn't sound that bad depending on what it is you're looking for, but the United States was still recovering from the recession of 1973 to 1975, so it was impressive not only that the brand was able to recover, but that so many people decided to purchase Corvettes over more fuel-conscious, cheaper import offerings that were beginning to take hold at the time. So, while the Arab oil embargo had everyone worried about fuel consumption and gas prices, which went hand-in-hand with the decline of the bigger-is-better mentality in American automotives, there remained a clear market for what the Corvette was offering, and Chevrolet intended to keep the brand strong heading into the 1980s. In 1981, production moved from the Corvette assembly plant in St. Louis to a new plant in Bowling Green, Kentucky, home of the future National Corvette Museum. The C-3 soldiered on into the 80s with the same sleek look, but somewhat softer, with a more rounded appearance and lighter materials. Which was cool, but unfortunately, a government-mandated 85 mph speedometer was added, which was bad enough if you were looking to get going on the track, but If you were living in California, it was even worse, since state emission laws restricted displacement to the 305 cubic inch V8 and an automatic transmission for 1980, which itself isn't the end of the world, but when there were so many other engine options, it was understandable that people felt throttled. And while 1981 brought a computer control command feature to help control ignition timing and air-fuel mixture as a way of reducing emissions, the C3 was stuck with automatic transmissions for its final year in 1982. But there was at least more power on offer in the form of the fuel-injected 350 cubic inch L83 V8, making 200 horsepower, in addition to a redesigned exhaust system and an in-tank electric fuel pump. But excitement was cooling for the Corvette. Production numbers declined to 25,407 units. Yet it wouldn't be the end of the Corvette. Oh, wait, what, it was? Well, it was and it wasn't, as the Corvette ended up taking a year off. A good story for another time. Ugh, that friggin' line. But for now, we come to the dusk of the Corvette's early years. In more
1: ways than one. You know, for a video ostensibly about Harley Earl and the early history of the Corvette, he's been strangely
0: absent for a sizable chunk of this video, and that reason is obviously that he retired in 1958, and yet, that wasn't the end of his story. You see, when Harley Earl retired, his final project involved overseeing designs on the 1960 to 1962 models of the Corvette. You could argue that he had more to offer, but upon turning 65, Harley had reached GM's mandatory retirement age, never mind that by the time he walked out the door, GM had become one of the world's largest corporations off the back of his philosophies like utilizing auto design over performance to drive sales or the whole planned obsolescence ideology. In 1960, Harley took on the role of second-ever Commissioner of NASCAR, and yeah, the position was mostly an honorary title with no power, but that would change over the decades that followed. And yes, he only really got the title because he was friends with the first Commissioner, Big Bill France, unrelated to Big Bill Hell. But the Commissioner role was also a way of rewarding certain figures for their contributions to racing. Harley would remain commissioner for just nine years, the second shortest tenure for a commissioner. But regardless of the duration of his tenure, Harley's legend status is evident by the fact that the Harley J. Earl Trophy is still awarded each year to the winner of the Daytona 500. So the respect for him didn't end at General Motors. On the subject of General Motors, this period marked the passing of the brothers who'd helped Harley get his start in the company. Of the seven brothers who ran Fisher Body, all but one had died before 1972. Among them were Harley's friends, Lawrence P. Fisher, who passed away in 1961, and Alfred J. Fisher, who passed away two short years later. In a way, it felt like the end of an era, as the automotive world was moving towards new ideas and fresh faces to usher them in although this does nothing to diminish the contributions of those who paved those well-worn paths. On April 10, 1969, the world lost Harley Jefferson Earl to a stroke at the age of 75. Yet he was far from forgotten in the years that followed. In addition to the aforementioned Harley J. Earl trophy first awarded in 1959, Earl was posthumously inducted into the Automotive Hall of Fame in 1986. In 1999, in a list by the Detroit Free Press ranking Michigan's 100 Greatest Artists and Entertainers of the 20th Century, Earl was third, behind only Aretha Franklin and Stevie Wonder. His Automotive Hall of Fame induction serves as a eulogy to Harley Earl's accomplishments, and a primer on why he's remembered to this day. Quote, The achievements during Harley Earl's tenure as GM's head of design could fill a book. He introduced clay modeling to the design studios. The concept of the annual model change, called Dynamic Obsolescence, was pioneered. Concept cars, like the Buick Y-Job, were introduced. A review of noteworthy cars created during his tenure... Fills of a book on its own. Of all the firsts, the most important was the legitimizing of the role of design and the designer. End quote. Harley Earl was ahead of his time, and he brought cars ahead of theirs. More than anything, this is his legacy. For the domestic auto industry, Harley Earl designed the future. Shaping a path he would live to see paved, but never tread. But then, such is the business of innovators.
1: Thus ends the tale of Harley Earl. But not that of his creation.